0: Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been sponsored by Himalaya, the best app for discovering, listening, and organizing podcasts. Himalaya was nice enough to reach out and make me an editor's choice, so now they're a sponsor. Check them out at Himalaya.com or in the App Store. I'm really excited to be here today with Ben Michaelis, PhD, who is a clinical psychologist, elite performance coach, and the author of Your Next Big Thing, 10 Small Steps to Get Moving and Get Happy. He has been featured on HuffPost, The New York Times, Psychology Today, Parents, Glamour, and many other publications, and is a frequent guest expert about mental health on TV and radio. He graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Columbia University and earned his PhD from NYU. He currently lives in Brooklyn, New York. So welcome to
1: Ben. Thanks so much. Glad to be here, Zibi. Thanks for coming on. So
0: can you please tell listeners what your next big thing is about and how you came up with the idea to write it?
1: Sure. So your next big thing was actually really about one woman who I worked with, who I can say we mutually changed each other's lives. She was, to be perfectly frank, it was one of the most difficult kind of clients I had originally. And I, you know, it was relatively early in my experience as a clinician and nothing that I did, nothing in my training was helping this woman. And she was, you know, in her early 40s, single mother with a job that was, she described it as soul-sucking, I think was the words that she used. And she was clearly depressed, but and in, caught in a really bad place and nothing that I'd been trained for helped her. And I felt pretty, pretty bad and honestly pretty frustrated. And at some point during the work with her, I just kind of threw everything out the window and I said, I want to try something with you. I want to try a thought experiment with you. And I asked her to close her eyes and to imagine her great, great, great granddaughter. And I took her through something that literally I, I just came up with on the spot, this exercise where I tried to get her into the mind of her great, great, great granddaughter. Because the one thing in this woman's life that she really, that the only source of joy was her daughter. And so I tried to get her to picture what this girl's life was gonna be like in the distant future. And then after I got her really steeped in this girl's life, I had her turn the camera back on herself to say, okay, what does this girl know about you? How did your life, besides the fact that you were her you know, forbear, how did you contribute to her life? And she opened her eyes and she said, I wanna make her a piece of jewelry to go to her senior prom, her high school prom. It was like, Zibi, when I tell you that it was like one of these moments that like, you just never forget. Like it was so powerful, like it was so specific and so powerful. And I'm telling you, from that moment on, something happened in this woman that changed her and, and ultimately changed me because this is someone that, like, at that point, she wasn't jeweler or anything like that. She had really liked making, like, jewelry when she was a kid with beads. But, like, she hadn't thought about that in, like, 30-some-odd years. And then quickly actually became a jeweler. Like, she would come in... To the office, and like I don't, I, I don't know anything about jewelry, but like, I knew things that are cool looking. And she'd come <laughs> in with these like really cool pieces, and then she like took a metal smithing class and had to work with silver, and like, and then she began selling her work pretty like. So this was this was a long time ago now, like when eBay, um, Etsy rather was really relatively early, and she was one of the first people that like really made that into a career through Etsy. This, which was it wasn't common back then. And so the work kind of proceeded from there, where I would try things with her, some would work, some wouldn't. And I was just like taking notes about things that were working and some that weren't working. And then at some point, I was like, wow, you know, if you actually put these things together, it could be a, a book. And I'd never written a book or anything like it at that point. And that became the basis of the book.
0: Wow, that's such an inspiring story. And I love how at other times when you got out all the crayons to really break through to another patient and your creative ways of really connecting with your patients and then being able to include those in the book, that was really awesome.
1: Thanks. Yeah, it's been, I can say like, it originally was going to be only about her, but as you know, like editors wanted it to be more diverse and other people. So I did bring in work with other people, but a lot of the book was really about her fundamentally
0: so tell me how the order of things went when you were working on this book because the book is filled with fantastic devices to help anybody who's sort of stuck in their life figure out their next step so all these great quizzes and takeaways and lessons like did you when you first thought about the book were you like i'm gonna put in quizzes and make it so that everybody is like using it really like a manual or like how did that whole thing come about
1: so I I tend to favor things that are very practical. I'm just a very practical person. And I actually think I like quizzes personally. I like written some quizzes for Oprah, like in the past, and, and I actually really like them and I've gotten really good feedback about the quizzes themselves, that they're pretty engaging. And so the idea that they would help people to sort of get engaged and think about where they are in their own journey is something that I I personally like. And so I I thought that having them in the book would be really useful for people.
0: It was also good because as I went through it, I was like, okay, good. I'm good here. I'm good here. And then I'm like, oh dear, like this is where I need to focus. (laughs) It's always good to have it really quantified and like thrown back in your face like that. Without having to Maybe. be like, well, how do I really feel about this? So, so that was good. You know, it's interesting because as a therapist, there's so much talk about like finding joy and you talk about this in your book too, finding happiness and all this stuff. But from the basic like theory of your book is sometimes you are literally just stuck in a place in your life and that in and of itself is making you miserable. Maybe it's nothing other than you can't get out of your circumstance. And then once you shift that, like was your patient then really happy afterwards? Like, did she just need the, do you know what I'm trying to say? Like, is it sometimes you just have to change things?
1: So it's a great question. And I don't know if you saw this later in the book, but this patient had, by the way, I don't love the term patient. I don't love the term client. I think they're both flawed. And so I use them, but I don't like either term just because I think that patient implies illness and client is more businessy. And I just Neither of them work for me. What, anyway, should, what, what should we call it? I, I, I need to come up with a new term, but a human being. She's, she's a lovely human being, but this person who I was working with, which is a lot longer. <laughs> so she started to make a lot of changes in her life, especially when, when the jewelry was starting to sell. And then she'd also lost a bunch of weight at one point, and, which is something she'd wanted to do for a long time. But it actually, once she started, honestly, she started to get more attention from men, she kind of panicked. Mm. And disappeared from therapy for a while and gained back some weight and got back into some old patterns, which so you know, I think that it's challenging to just have I mean, for, for her, she was a pretty extreme example of someone that, like literally this conversation changed the trajectory of her life. And I think that we need to having some guidance during those moments can be really useful, but also kind of allowing things to evolve because I think that there were so many changes in her life in a very short period of time that it was a little bit overwhelming. And there's something to be said for just letting things develop a pace. It's like, it's, if you think about it like a diet, like I saw a patient yesterday who looked great. You can't call and her a
0: patient. I'm really sorry. Someone told me that it's not nice to call <laughs> them patients. So if you could just call her a human being, that okay, would be better. Okay. Okay,
1: All right, thank you, Ziby. No problem. No, it's a guy actually. And I, I worked with him for many years and he struggled with weight loss. Uh, with losing weight and he's gone up and down but like this was the first time that like he's like just been losing like a little bit and he looks really good and i'm like oh this is a sustainable change now this wasn't this isn't you know before he had to go to this one wedding he lost a lot of weight and like gained it all back but this i feel like he's on a path now because it's going slowly and smoothly so anyway long answer
0: no, that's I mean that's okay. That's um interesting engineering. <laughs> so you recommend that people add some things in their life or really sort of fine tune play and purpose and work, and that these are some big buckets to focus on. So I wanted to hear a little more about play because theoretically, that sounds like, okay, sure, I'll try to put more play in my life. But what does that mean? Does that mean like every so often I have to drag myself to like listen to live music or something crazy? Or like, what does that look like? What And what constitutes play versus just leisure?
1: It's a great question. And it's something that I've been asked about a lot. And I don't really mean play in the sort of like, let's play ping pong, let's play football. That's great, too. I really think, and I don't think I maybe, I need to explain this a little bit more like engaging the imagination and thinking about what you're doing a little bit differently and it's almost like it's something there's something about the attitude to it so like my son and I went to a creek on July 4th weekend and like he really wanted to like climb up the creek which was a little bit dangerous but like I was like yeah like let's do it and like it felt very playful to me even though like you could say like all you're doing is climbing up a creek but like you had to like climb over rocks, and like, it, I don't know, it, it, something about that, it's, the, it, it's almost like the spirit behind it, which I know is maybe hard to explain, but it's like you sort of know it when you're doing it.
0: The other day, I was with the kids at the beach club, at this little beach club we belong to out here, and there were only kids and me in this pool because every other mom I think is not as manipulated by their children and was able to <laughs> sort of like stay in their cute little cover-ups and I was not. Anyway, they were all diving off this diving board which was grandfathered in cuz it's been around for so long and I was like, "You know what? I'm just going to do a dive off the diving board in front of all <laughs> these moms and everyone else because like that sounds like fun and let me try it." So, that was like I think my attempted at play, but then I quickly realized once I hit the water and my neck hurt and I was like, "Oh my gosh, I'm too old for this." Like <laughs> So maybe play within reason or, you know,
1: (laughs) play within boundaries, but I do like the spirit that you have. Thank you. Absolutely. absolutely.
0: Talk to me more about defeating your inner critic, because that was a big section for me that I feel like, you know, let's make this about me. (laughs) Help me me defeat my inner critic. What would you tell other people about when your, your, your self-talk is a little too negative at times?
1: You know, I think that the inner critic often comes from, it, it actually comes from, usually usually it comes from a good place, which is an instinct for self-preservation and that our parents and grandparents want to keep us safe. And that's good. That's, that's really useful. The problem is, is that you can't be safe your whole life or else you don't have any life. And so there is this sort of sense of, no, you can't do that or no, you shouldn't do that. And I think that part of the process of maturation is figuring out which which of those things is right for you and which of those is wrong for you. Because there are some things that maybe are kind of dangerous, but I tend to, I don't think the world is as dangerous a place as many people think it is. And Because when you think of the world as dangerous, then you can't be creative. You can't play. You can't explore. And so realizing that the world is just like, I can go into a whole thing about statistics (laughs) now. But like, I don't watch the local news. I think that there's a lot of these things that make us feel afraid. Whereas, and that sort of feed into the inner critic and feed into that sense of, no, you can't do that. But like, most doors are two-way doors. You can walk in and walk out the exception to that rule is having kids. Like there's only one way through that door. And so if you walk through that door, you better be damn sure you want to be on the other side of that because there are very few other things that you can't walk back in this life.
0: I just started reading a book called Don't Wait Up, something like Confessions of a Stay-at-Work Mom by an author named Liz Ostroff, who I'm interviewing soon. And she said that in the delivery room, when her son was born, she was like, Don't take the tags off yet. I'm not sure we want to keep them. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. You like can't go back. It's like the only time you can't go back. But so tell me a little also about the coaching that you do. So have you turned this way of getting people to sort of find their next big thing into you know one-on-one service separate from your clinical
1: work? So interestingly enough, so the answer is yes. But one of the things that I've actually been finding a lot of joy in in the last I would say eight years, but it's really taken off. I would say the last two. So I'd actually started working. I don't think this was in the book. I started working with a couple of brothers who have a company together and working on the challenges of their relationship as being brothers and being business owners and did that with actually a couple of different family businesses. And then I started to work with these two women And this is public record, the women that run of a kind. So on their business and really, you know, admire them. They're wonderful human beings. And from there have started to work with a lot of business partners on their relationship and the challenges of being friends or being family members and running a business together. So I've been doing a lot of that lately with different businesses. <laughs> it just, just so happens that from, cause the, these, the women that run of a kind wrote a book and I was in their book. And so I actually have a fair number of female founders in my practice right now that are friends or related and have businesses together. So.
0: Very cool. Do you have any other stories aside from your first client who, you know, like when you go to sleep at night you feel so proud of the influence you've had in their life?
1: You know, I do. And like that was a pretty dramatic one, but like even, you know, honestly one from yesterday with these two different women that run a company together where it was the right decision to try to kind of separate them just for for the purposes of their own emotional well-being and their business. And this week, they are going to kind of go their separate ways. And they were both incredibly grateful for the process that we've gone through together to get them there because it's been so conscious and lovely. And it could be very much the opposite. And so when I was, you know, finishing my day yesterday, I was feeling really happy about that, like to be able to hopefully be a force for good for people.
0: You're like a marriage counselor for... Business owners. Business. Yeah.
1: Totally. Couples yeah.
0: counseling. That's awesome. Tell me more a little bit about this one minute diagnosis on YouTube. Are you still doing these? I found all these great videos and I was like, oh gosh, what do I have? I have all of these things. Like,
1: <laughs> So that really was honestly a public service that I decided to do. So, you know, I do a fair amount of media. And when Donald Trump was a candidate, I was interviewed by Vanity Fair about him this was in and f- early in 2015, I guess. And so I talked about personality disorders and it's part of this article and then began to do a lot of media on that and realized like the public doesn't know about personality disorders. And so I decided, I was like, look, this is easy enough to do to like make it digestible for people. And so I just decided to do these videos like on my own and they've actually been used by, All kinds of agencies and the New York Police Department now uses them to train their force on these sorts of things because it's easily digestible information that people should know because I think that when people think about mental illness, they tend to think about depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, things of that nature, and they don't think about this whole other category, and that's where the videos really came from.
0: That's awesome. So, I have a question about your being a dad and having all this information, right? So, you have a son who you're you're out camping, you're doing whatever. You see all these patients who end up at a place in their lives where they need to pivot in some way. What can you teach kids or what can you teach someone just starting out to make sure they start off on the right path versus going somewhere negative and then having to regroup? Is there anything you can do, or is it just life that has to happen?
1: so, just to be the question. So I think that as a parent, I think it's very dangerous if you work from theory. I think it's really not a good practice. I think that my job is to love my kids and like, that's my job and like figure out how to, you know, let them develop in the ways that they want and the ways that they have talents and what have you. And so I want to be, that's like one category, but then like for people that are not my kids, which is separate, I do think that There is a combination of listening, and it's like it's almost trite at this point, but like you kind of have to listen to and watch what feels right for you. I know that sounds again, it sounds trite, but and it takes a while. So, like, look, obviously, I'm you know a very hopefully sensitive human being, very emotional (laughs) being. Like, the world doesn't have a lot of tolerance for that, or historically, like for boys, like to be like a really sensitive boy. And so it's not, like, obvious when you're a teenager, like, oh, you should be a therapist. But, like, listening to that and leaning into it as opposed to being like, well, because the world doesn't like that, I'm not going to do that. Like, that's so, – so, so kind of listening to what – sorry, but what feels right. For
0: yeah. You. Did you have doubts about becoming a therapist? Or, what it, like, what else did you consider doing?
1: I very seriously considered becoming a journalist. I started my undergraduate at Northwestern and in journalism. And it just didn't, ultimately didn't feel right. Although interestingly enough, like all of my best friends are journalists. Hmm. I think there's a very similar, there's a question about human motivation that comes with being a journalist. So literally like all of my closest friends are either are writers. So, but it just wasn't the right particular angle for me.
0: Interesting. But now you've kind of done it all, right? You now you have the book and... I mean yeah. <laughs> it all I don't know, I feel like everything kind of comes together I mean that's I don't know, not always, yeah. but <laughs> yeah. so what advice would you give someone if they were trying to write a book like yours a sort of practical and amazing, useful book to help other people? What would you say
1: so this is gonna be the the part of the interview where I become less popular, but like it's like. Honestly, it's discipline. It is a daily practice of writing. There's a website called 750 words, which like I know a lot of folks that I work with have used. And I think that literally the daily practice of writing, you know, whatever time you're freshest in the day, you do that every day, because writing is something you can get better at through practice. And consistency is absolutely critical. And some days, What you write is absolute trash. And some days what you write is brilliant, but it is the the practice of doing it is absolutely the the way to go about it.
0: And do you enjoy writing when you're not working on a book for publication? Like, do you write just for yourself?
1: I do. So I'm working on this new endeavor right now that I feel very passionately about, which has to do with like building community. And so I've been leading these retreats that are, it's just very close to my heart. So to do them the right way, I've basically shut off the writing for now. I'm hoping that six months to a year, I can get back to it. But so the answer is usually I am, I'm not, it's certainly not every day consistent, but I do write frequently, but I do want to get back into it in about six months to a year is my plan.
0: Can you tell me any more about the exciting retreats community? Is this a secret?
1: No, it's it's just, they're not talking about them that much because the, the idea behind them is to create emotional safety for people that work, you know, I work with a fair number of sort of public facing folks and to be able to create an environment for these people to have conversations of depth and meaning. And so in order to do that, I interview everyone that wants to come and really think about it so that you can create an environment that is actually emotionally safe. And it's working quite beautifully. It just takes a lot of thought and effort because, if I say to you, oh, you can come to this retreat, it's going to be safe. You're putting an unbelievable amount of trust in me, which means I need to make sure that every single person that comes is like going to be respectful of that and wants to do this. And it requires a lot of time.
0: I hope you didn't think I was trying to invite myself. No, You're like, you can't come. Don't come no, no. to my retreat. I was not trying to get an invitation. No, I was not, just was not at all. curious about what you were doing. <laughs>
1: No, we're it's it's been it's been going incredibly well and we're actually launching the West Coast next week. So, yeah, but it's it's been I've actually really been enjoying the process even though it's a lot of work. That's
0: awesome. So you found your next big thing.
1: I have. Yeah.
0: Perfect. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and for being so patient with all our scheduling and everything. So
1: No worries. It was absolutely a pleasure and I look forward to, you know, us getting to spend some time together in person soon.
0: Me too. Take care. Have a great day. You
1: too. Okay. You too.
0: Bye. Bye. Thanks again to today's sponsor of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, Himalaya, the best app for discovering, listening, and organizing podcasts, Himalaya.com. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com.